In the deep dark, the Aslan are moving, but there is a darker power. There is something behind the claw. Welcome to episode 16 of the Behind the Claw podcast, a show for fans of the classic traveller RPG. I'm Felbrick Napoleon Herriot, and let's start the show by taking a look in the email vault. Brian's got in touch to mention an old traveller product from FASA called the Sky Raiders campaign. The name didn't mean anything to me, but when I took a look online, I found the cover very familiar. I suspect one of my old long-forgotten buddies must have had a copy of this at some point. I found that the adventure is still on drive through RPG, and so I've added it to my wish list. Andy also got in touch to point me at a new TV series called Dark Matter. He suggests that it might have a traveller influence in there somewhere. I can't say one way or the other as I've never seen it, although the show's premise of people waking up on a starship with no memory is a trope that I've used in Traveller. Has anyone else got thoughts on the show's travellerness? Mr Quayle has written in again, and I'm going to quote him almost verbatim on the subject of the Traveller's Aid Society, as he makes some very good points in response to the last episode, and has some very cool ideas. Mr Quayle writes, You talk about the TAS as being a megacorp due to its size, but might a better comparison actually be a charity? After all, plenty of British private members' clubs are assembled as such, and there isn't much evidence that it's a money-making enterprise. The one million cred bill probably doesn't go that far in the grand scheme of things. How much would premium starport space cost to rent? And the discounted food and drink makes me think of the finances of a student union rather than the profiteering of a fancy nightclub. Logically, you'd need a lot of money to start something like the TAS up, do you think, like Britain's private schools, it perhaps originally existed as some sort of royal charter? Maybe a past emperor helped it along, explaining how it managed to spread across the stars so quickly. Perhaps nobles left money or land to keep the task going, and these investments are where all those bonus high passages come from. I played them in my recent campaign very much as a gentleman's club in space. The members of the task thought of themselves as the real travellers, the classy interstellar community, and getting in was a major social move. Perhaps the one million credit cost has less to do with practicality, and more of a prestige thing. Certainly in Mongoose's Traveller, there's mention that all new members only get in by not being blackballed by the current members, so the politics of getting in could be serious business amongst the upper middle classes. On your thoughts of high passages, it had never occurred to me that those free high passages would be bulk broad and thus discounted. But of course it seems obvious now. Perhaps it's a conflict for the carriers. On the one hand, there may be less money involved, but on the other hand, making connections with rich clients and having them return or recommend you to a friend would be lucrative. Is one profitless journey with a baron worth it to try and get him to give you a good rating on the Traveller Advisor Network? And there ends Mr Quayle's letter. Huge thanks to everyone who wrote in. It's your emails that keep this show going, honestly. So now, on with the show. I have no idea. So, computer, what can you tell me about this place? 
This is My Galaxy, where I tell you about one of the star systems inside the Tassesso subsector. A map and planetary UPPs can be found on the show's website at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Raparuz is a terraformed planet. It was discovered a couple of hundred years ago and purchased by the long-lived Foodine Industries Megacorp as a long-term development project. The reason Foodine grabbed the planet so soon after discovery is that they saw a lot of potential in in this barren planet. With no existing occupants and a thick nitrogen-rich atmosphere, they deemed it suitable for a terraforming project. Over the following 200 years, they worked on the atmosphere, converting it and making it suitable for habitation. It has now reached a sustainable, self-sustaining state, and colonists are being encouraged to set up in residence. In only a few months of being open to applications, the planet has already reached around 5,000 inhabitants, and every ship that arrives brings more. The population is expected to be in the millions before the end of the decade. There is a brisk trade at the starport in colonist and homestead materials that are being sold for a premium. A number of guide services are also in place to help new arrivals find a place to set up. Fadine have promised every family that moves there a minimum of 10 acres of ground, although what type of ground is based on what's available at the time of arrival. Fadine are running Raparoos as a business. All land belongs to and remains the property of Fudine in perpetuity. It is their intention that every transaction that takes place on Raparoos will be subject to a Fundime 1% overhead. Thus, people arriving and purchasing housing and the guide services are already paying Fudine. Although Fudine remains quiet about actual numbers, some estimates suggest that they will recoup the cost of terraforming within 50 years, and from then on, it will all be profit. An elected colonist committee is currently in charge and taking the place of an established government, and the colonists are free to make what they want of the planet in the future. The only stipulation being that Fudine will always own the planet and take their levy. Although some speculators have suggested that Fudine might just be waiting for the planet to get established before kicking everybody off, this has not stopped the flood of colonists arriving and seeking passage to this planet. At present, the population is spread so thinly across the surface that the strength of the committee is really only felt around the starport, meaning, for all intents, the colonists are on their own when they set up their plot of land. Everything is very flexible at the moment, nothing is set, and there is no central government structure for people to appeal to, to seek help from, or even demand protection from. It is a prime time for independent traders to visit, although you will have to seek your own customers as there is no central network to tie your computers into. On more civilised worlds, it has been noted that various religious cults are taking note of Raparus and are actively raising funds to transport their members to the planet. At least one fraternity have expressed a wish to migrate all their members to the planet and have a dominating majority there. At present, the flora and fauna is very limited on the planet. Fadine have accomplished their terraforming by limiting their fauna to insects, with no other animals having been imported. No, no, no way. The way I heard it is that he was shipping arms, guns, you know, taking them straight in, under the navvy's nose. It's time for another story seed. Lord Ithika 
is of noble birth and an accomplished scientist. He and his family are not rich, not having any great fortune to hand down to their heirs. But he is himself comfortably well off because of the success of his scientific work. His claim to fame is the invention of a drug called Crystalline Apollo that has the power to revolutionise human society galaxy-wide as it has transformed the life on his homeworld. Christine Apollo allows the person taking it to simply not feel the need to go to sleep. People are able to take the drug for up to a fortnight on the trot. This allows them to work for up to three times as many hours during that period. This has made employers and employed happy, and productivity to increase dramatically. Unfortunately, there is a serious side effect. There is a relatively low chance that individuals who take the drug on a regular basis can develop a psychosis that leads to extremely violent behaviour. Lord Atika is fully aware of this and has been trying for months to stop the drug being used. Chemical Inducements Inc. have been trying to placate Atika and prevent him from going to the press with this information as they are making a tremendous amount of credits. Starting with a gentle cajoling and promises that they would of course tell the world, the relationship between the company and Atheka started breaking down as he realised that they had no intention of warning the world. Soon he found himself under a corporate house arrest. This is where the PCs come in. They might be friends of Atheka, or he might hire them to spirit him away from under the thumb of Chemical Inducements Inc. He's desperate to get the word out via the news channels or the press but Chemical Inducements Inc. have operatives everywhere. They also have men in the local police, meaning the PCs will have no one that they can trust. But don't tell the players this up front. Let them discover it through play. You'll be able to have any number of chases during this scenario, maybe even a jailbreak if the company choose to levy some trumped-up charges against Ithika that get him incarcerated. Ithika isn't just looking to get away. He wants to get away and to go public. He can't just post a message on a message board and hope that people read it. He needs to get into some sort of worldwide media and to broadcast his warning and have people take note of it. You might achieve this by getting him in to see the CEO of a media outlet and to convince him to help or to even hack into a satellite network and transmit his message to the whole world. There are any number of problems you can throw at the players to keep this interesting. Are local enforcers, the police, or even a military hit team sent after this scientist? Are they trying to kill him? Will they do anything to suppress his truth? Other people might be after him. Perhaps other companies who want to monopolise his brain. Does he have any family that might be kidnapped in an attempt to leverage him? Does he have any other cool drugs in the pipeline? Is he currently working on a way to stop the side effects of Christian Apollo? No, sir. You may not dock here. What the hell? I just made three jumps to get here. Without Permit 7C, you may not dock. Now move out to the holding line at 6,000 kilometres. This is Rules Talk, where we talk about the rules relating to Traveller and some of the background materials. Today I'm taking a look at the humblest of starship defensive systems, the humble Sandcaster. I'll start by telling you what I've always assumed the Sandcaster to be, and then I'll take you through what I've found when I've gone through the rules themselves. My assumption was that a Sandcaster was like a large salt shaker 
that spurted an expanding cone-shaped sheet of sand-like material out into the void. I thought this sand came directly out of the muzzle of the sandcaster, which had some sort of spinning dispenser on the end. So let's see what the rules actually say. In Book 2, Starships, it's a good place to start, as it says, Sandcasters are defensive weapons. They dispense small particles which counteract the strength of lasers and protect the ship. The specific particles used are similar to Amblad personal armour. Replacement canisters of this special sand weigh about 50 kilograms and cost 400 credits. Now that was a surprise to me. The cost of replacing the sand had never actually occurred to me, so that this was a bit of new information. Reading on, I see that putting a sandcaster into a turret costs a quarter of a million, and that a gunnery skill does apply to their use. Now that gave me pause for thought. Why would a system that spurts out sand require gunnery skill? A little further on, it suggests that sandcasters launch like missiles, That just simply blew my mind. I've been thinking about them all wrong. So here's what I now assume sandcasters are. As you need a gunner and it launches, I now assume that it does actually fire a canister of sand that the gunner therefore aims. That canister either explodes, spreading its sand in an expanding sphere, or maybe it spins, distributing the sand into an expanding disc in the path of the lasers. I like both of those ideas. But I read on, and when I got to the High Guard book, I found a line indicating that no gunners are required for sandcasters on small ships. So, I think I might just forget about that line, as it doesn't seem to fit in with what the other books say. I really like the idea of shooting canisters, especially as firing these simple little sandcasters is going to cost the PCs 400 credits a pop. piece of junk. Who bought this anyway? No, no, don't you dare say it was me. This review is for the first alien module, the Aslan. My PDF came from DriveThruRPG and it's a scan of an original printing. The front and rear cover show a copy that must have been well used as the black colouring has worn off from multiple places. The inside text, however, is very clear and is even searchable, so no complaint there. The Aslan themselves are a bipedal intelligent race that appear to have descended from Terran lions, much as the Varg appeared descended from wolves. The immediate difference between Aslan society and human is the different roles held by the genders. Males are all about gaining and holding land, self-importance and even duelling. Females are the ones who actually do all the important work. Administration, business, making sure everybody has something to eat. You know, those minor little matters. If you've been listening to my other Alien Module reviews, you'll know what to expect here, as this module follows along pretty much the same line, structurally speaking. It starts off with an anatomy diagram, and then moves into an overview of the Aslan and their society. And once again, the booklet emphasises the difference between human and Aslan in how they think and how they behave. Of a special note here is how the males and females are very different. The males are the fighters with a drive to gain and own territory. And the females are the scientists, the administrators who actually do things. The booklet goes on to give us a potted history of the Aslan and describe how their society has evolved and developed. 
There is a section on their space forces, corporations and details of their empire. And as with the other alien modules, there are tables in here for generating Aslanic words and even a pronunciation guide. The character generation process for Aslan will be familiar to us all, but does have some differences. There are obviously restrictions on gender. The usual careers are also slightly altered. For instance, a scout is now called a wanderer, but with a raison d'etre of discovering more lands that the males can take hold of. The lists of skills that you can gain are reproduced in this book, which I like, as it means you don't have to keep referencing the other books to see what a skill means. I also like how the balance of skills has been altered to match the race. For instance, blade combat is very rare, as the Aslan don't do that. Gambling is also very rare, as the Aslan just don't do that either. And one new skill which I found quite interesting is independence, which is important for a male Aslan that wants to strike out on his own, away from the clan. There are the usual translation rules for generating high guard Aslan characters as well. World generation for Aslan is subtly altered, as their government and habitual clan structure make the standard imperial definitions meaningless, so the mechanics are very similar but the meanings are different. Next in the book are encounter tables for use on Aslan worlds, which places emphasis on clan and gender. Then comes a section detailing how and where Aslan appear within imperial space and humans within Aslan space. This short section is ripe for mining out campaign ideas, and I find the concepts of putting your characters into an alien subsector quite fascinating. The last seven or so pages detail the Aslan homeworld and then quickly dives into an Aslan-focused adventure. This is primarily an episodic journey on an Aslan ship. There is not too much detail of the space to be traversed as the adventure is very character-focused. It also gives you rules for generating the space you travel through, which is slightly different from generating a normal subsector. One interesting new rule here is the learning of the Aslan language for any human characters. It's not handled like a normal skill. All in all, this is just like the other alien modules, an absorbing read regardless of its use in your game. The Aslan themselves are an ideal alien race that can interact with humans, but at the same time are very different, which makes them ideal as allies or enemies. I recommend this PDF to you. Did you hear that? What the hell do you think it is? Is it dangerous? This is the Creature Catalogue, where I tell you about one of the creatures that can be found across the Imperium. The Spitcat is an arboreal mammal that can be found on many tyrannic-like planets. It has managed to spread around the galaxy, partially because it is a versatile omnivore, but mostly because it's cute. At least to many humans it appears cute. This animal's natural homeworld includes many types of terrain, of which the following categories are inhabited by Spitcats. Mountains and hills, forest, scrub and seashore. These are the natural habitats, but as may be proved on a number of worlds, the animal is very adaptable and has taken up residence in many unexpected locations. A full-grown spitcat can weigh as much as eight pounds or as little as four. It is a quadruped, covered in scales, with each scale being fringed with hair, giving the animal a soft, downy look. It has four legs, two prehensile tails that emanate one from either end of its spine. 
With small protruding eyes and large pointed ears, the animal is considered cute by many, with the only detracting feature being the end of its snout which gives the cat its name. Pouches in the animal's neck collect a mildly acidic fluid. As a defence mechanism, muscles can squeeze these pouches and force the liquid under pressure up through a channel in the skull and along a bony tube that extends to the end of its snout. This liquid is capable of hitting a target up to three yards away from the stinging spray. The bony tube is covered by a sphincter, but in older animals the strength of this tends to weaken and leads to a slow and constant dripping that the spit cat will shake its head to try and relieve, giving the impression that it's sneezing. Many find this adorable, and it often excites the mothering instinct in humans. The spit cat is an efficient hunter of small game. Its ability to climb near sheer surfaces and to leap to more than four times its own height mean it can seek game in the air and on the ground. Domesticated spit cats can be fed on dead or processed foodstuffs, but they prefer live food. This has led to a lot of owners using a process called playing bait, whereby the processed food is tossed or kicked around in play with the spit cat until it is excited enough to consume the dead food. On some worlds, the provision of live foods for spit cats has become a secondary pet industry. Although spit cats cannot be trained in any significant way, they have been used in many locations as a vermin hunter. For instance, on the world of Giast, many of the starport warehouses have their own semi-domesticated spit cats, which are encouraged to hunt the local vampiric insects that cause such a headache for the inhabitants and visitors. Wild spit cats are not usually a danger to humans. As a rule, they attempt to avoid and escape from humans. However, if they turn at bay, you should stay out of range of the animal's spit attack. Although not particularly acidic, if the spit does get into your eye, it can be extremely uncomfortable and there is a good chance of an infection. The bite and claws can also be very nasty, but are easily avoided as thick cloth can block both. So I'm here. Why don't you tell me why you're cold? There's a spacer in the corner booth. Don't stare at him. I see him. Who is he? It's the guy on the news vids. Which news vids? The thousands of channels. Crookwatch. This is People of Interest, where we have a look at some of the more important people across the Imperium. The planet of Hastur's Third was in serious trouble. Its occupants had long since fallen to calling the planet by the nickname Smoker, because the atmosphere was so polluted. For over 300 years, the inhabitants had been burning hydrocarbons in an unrestricted manner to power their society. The result was that the atmosphere became more and more polluted. The accumulated effects of this pollution were disastrous. As the atmosphere darkened, the air heated up, becoming more violent. Storms raged for weeks that had previously lasted only for days, and they were much stronger, sometimes demolishing entire towns. Crop yields were dropping, natural habitats were degrading, and life for individuals was becoming worse. As there was no strong central government on Hastur's third, there was no forced impetus to move away from the hydrocarbons and to seek for a cleaner source of energy. The population began to shrink as the number of health issues caused by the pollution took their toll, and those that could afford to would leave the planet. The situation 
was reversed by a scientist-engineer called Paulus Millet. Paulos worked for an engineering company on Hastis III that produced ground vehicles that ran on hydrocarbons. Like everyone else, he was aware that the planet's atmospheric issues were linked to the very vehicles that he was producing. On his own time, weekends and evenings, he decided to investigate resolutions for the planet's pollution problem. Others had also spent time and many newspaper column inches in ranting about the list of problems and demanding that someone fix them. But no one did. The usual response is that it was all too much of a big venture. Any resolutions unviable and far too expensive. So in the end, no one had done anything. Paulus looked at and discarded all of the previous proposals that had been mentioned in the scientific and news press. Having thus ruled out all of the big projects, he turned his mind towards smaller issues and spent some years investigating the problems caused by the pollution and the approaches taken to deal with those issues. His conclusion was that up to this point, the only things that had been done were attempts to treat the symptoms rather than the cause. His moment of genius was a small revelation with a big impact. Households were already using air filters and cleaners to pump clean air indoors. But he noticed that the result was that the impurities were simply dumped back outside into the air. He crunched some numbers and came up with a solution that would be cheap to implement and could start to make a real difference. After a few months tinkering in his garage, he developed a prototype that could be fitted onto a standard household filter. The difference this device made was that it solidified the carbon that was being vented before. When the device had collected 500 grams of carbon-based pollutants, it ejected it in the form of a solid brick, thus removing the pollutants from the air. The clever part of Paulus's plan, however, was that he went on a round of talk shows and other media, explaining that this cheap device would mean that effectively the outside air was being cleaned just as much as the indoors air. If only 10% of homes, he said, in cities fitted his invention, there would be a visible clearing of the air in that city. If 40% fitted them, inner city parks could be replanted and would bloom again. If 100% in a city fitted them, people would be able to remove their masks in the middle of the city on hot days. He explained how the device could be manufactured for 150 credits and that he would not patent the system Think of our children, he said, appealing to the families. And it worked. People wanted them. They were soon in mass production. Paulos didn't stop his campaign, however. He used his fame and his message to convince people to move away from hydrocarbons in little ways. He expanded his design to create a wind turbine that helped to power the filters and could be purchased individually and added to his other device. There were more designs and devices, all promoted under his Think of the Children banner. Soon, subscriptions were taken out by towns to fit large filter cleaners of his design onto hilltops upwind of the town. Thus, the air blowing over the town was a little bit cleaner. And so it continued. Slowly, in bite-sized, easily affordable devices, his machines and the accompanying social campaign work spread across the planet and the air started to clear. The people of Hastas III became healthier. More sunlight reached the surface. The plant life began to recover and life became better. The planet has not fully recovered, but probably won't for another century or so. 
Yet Paulos Milad became a hero of the people, and he never made any great fortune from his work, but lives comfortably and wants for nothing. Thanks for the trade, Tuchel. It was a pleasure doing business with you. So long, sucker. And so we've reached the end game once again. And as usual, if you have any thoughts, suggestions, questions or segment items you want in the show, please do send them in to behindtheclaw at outlook.com. This podcast is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Its home on the web is at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Music by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I'm your host, Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. Thanks for listening. Prepare for jump. <laughs>